Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. As many of you know, we are in a series called Welcome Home, and um, we have Really been, I've been enjoying this series. How many of you enjoyed having Pastor Jacob Aranza in the house with us last week? Was that incredible? I love my pastor. He is a force of nature everywhere that he goes. I absolutely love him. If you missed that message, I encourage you, go download it. You can go to our website and download the podcast and listen to last week's message. And uh, just incredible, incredible message continuing in our Welcome Home series. But this morning, I want to shift gears a little bit and continue in Welcome Home. But we've been taking a look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been breaking down this brand new young church, probably around a year old, that the Apostle Paul launched. The Apostle Paul came and birthed this church in the city of Thessalonica, and it was a very young church and intense persecution. He had to end up, he had to leave the church because of the intensity of the persecution, and he left there with a heavy heart of concern for how that church was going to do and how they were going to make it. And of course, two weeks ago, we found out the good news that Timothy, he'd sent his son-in-law, Timothy, to check on them, and they were staying faithful. They were continuing in the faith. But something that I want you to get from this is the same values, virtues, um, identity that Paul was teaching this church is the same identity God wants us to have. Because we're a part of the church, capital C, And so the identity, for those of you who are maybe new to the faith or maybe those of you who've been here for a very long time and and still are wrestling with and grappling, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to be like as a Christian? This series is for you. And so we're going to continue in that. Um, If you will... Go with me to the the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've gone through the first three chapters already, but like I taught a couple weeks ago, it's always good to go to the last few verses of the chapter you read that you're about to read because that way it gives you context for what you are about to read. And so we've gone through the first three chapters, but I want to go again to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 11. Now before I read this, I want you to know something. This is what we're talking about today. We're talking about family virtues. Everybody say family virtues. How many of you have virtues in your family? Some of you are like, (laughs) how many of you have things that you have taught your kids that maybe other people didn't teach their kids? Okay. How many of you have ever had your kids come to you and say, how come I can't do this? They get to. And your response is, I'm not raising them. I'm raising you. Right? That's a virtue. That's something that you teach your children and maybe everyone else does not have the same virtues or values. That's okay. That's the way we do it in this house. Now, the Apostle Paul is teaching us the way God's people do it. Because God says the same thing. My children do this. Everybody else may be able to do this, but my kids, they're going to act this way. This is how my children are going to live. I want you to know something. If you're a believer, you're different. 
You're just different. We are called to be different. We're chosen to be different. We're unique. We're countercultural to the world. We are not, we don't do things the world, the way that the world does it. We don't see things the way that the world sees it. We don't act the same way that the world acts. Why? Because we are different. We have a different daddy. When we go home, our daddy is not, is not one to hear. Well, they did it. Right. He's going to say the same thing. You're my child. This is how we do it in my house. So that's what we're looking at. So again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon and may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and what's the next word? Holy. Holy. As you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people, amen. Now what Paul is doing here is, is he's getting ready to turn the page. A new, a new chapter is beginning, but his message to the Thessalonians is about to change. Because up until this point, he's been defending himself to them. Because not only were they persecuted immediately after they became Christians, but a whole smear campaign began as well. And it was something to discredit Paul. Paul's not this. Paul's like all the rest of those traveling TV preachers. He just wants your money. Right? That, that's some of the things that were being said. No, not TV. I know they didn't have TV back then. Okay, I got it. I'm making a point. That he's just like all the rest of those preachers. And Paul was sitting back going, I didn't ask you for anything when I came. I came and I simply modeled the faith to you. I wanted more for you than I wanted from you. That's what Paul was saying. So he was defending himself in the first three chapters and teaching them. But then now he starts turning the page because he wants to no longer defend himself. He wants to, he wants to teach them. He wants to instruct them. He wants to show them how God indeed wants them to live. Excuse me, chapter four, verse one. This is what he says. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. As we have taught you, you live this way already. And we encourage you, excuse me, can I get a bottle of water, please? Thank you so much, James. Appreciate it. Give it up for our elder, James Bertrand. It was going to be a very long Sunday morning if I didn't get this drink of water. Let me go back. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we have taught you. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more for you remember what we taught by, excuse me, we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, another way, he starts off by saying finally, but another way, another translation even of that word that's used is furthermore. So he's saying furthermore, I'm, I'm turning the page. Now I'm going to talk about this. I'm ending that so that you can see it's time for me to instruct you. I want to teach you, teach you what? How you are supposed to live. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, we, we get born again and we, we jump into this thing and we don't always understand everything that we're a part of. That's okay. 
Like Pastor Jacob talked about last week, you give God what you can when you know about him. When God wants to put his finger on something, you give that thing to him. It's a progressive journey. You don't jump in and all of a sudden you're perfect. None of us are. And so we're growing, but they, they didn't quite understand everything. So Paul is teaching them how they are supposed to live. And he tells them, live in a way that pleases God. Can I just tell you, that is our aim as Christians. Our aim is to live in a way that actually pleases God, that honors him. And he says, live in the way that we taught you. He encourages them by saying to keep growing. In other words, he's saying, hey, you're doing good. You're actually doing really good with the stuff that I taught you while I was with you. But I want to encourage you to keep doing it even more. Keep growing. As a believer, we're never supposed to stop growing. The moment you get to the place in your spiritual journey where you feel like I've gotten enough, you're going to start digressing. Because in Christianity, there's no neutral. You're either moving forward or you're losing ground. Right? And so in your spiritual journey, Paul is saying, keep going, keep growing. You're doing these things, but do these things even more. Now, let me give you a little background again to the people that he's talking to. He's talking to the, the people of Thessalonica, and they were part of the Roman Empire, right? We've talked all about that in the book of Acts series, so I'm not going to belabor it. But the Roman Empire at this point was a very wicked and immoral culture. I heard one scholar say that there was the Roman Republic that eventually became the Roman Empire. And he said it this way, in the Roman Republic, there was not a single divorce. But when they became the Roman Empire, divorce became the norm. And he said that there were some women who would change husbands every year. That's how culturally just immoral this culture was. And the Greeks were even worse. Now, the Greeks, the people, the, the city of Thessalonica was primarily made up of Greek people. They were even worse. It was not taboo at all to be cheating on your spouse. This is the people that Paul is talking to. Y'all with me this morning? So I just want, I want you to understand who he's writing this letter to and the type of culture that they were around. It was nothing for them to cheat on one another and to defame one another. It was, not, it was nothing at all. So these are the people that Paul's speaking to. And he says this in verse three, God's will for you. Let me pause right there. God's will for you. Let me stop because I want you to see this. How many of you ever ask yourself the question, God, what's your will for my life? Come on, now that you saw the scripture, don't not raise your hand, raise your hand. How many of you ever asked the question, what's God's will for my life? We all have. God, what do you want me to do? What, what, what are you planning? Let me tell you, what are you asking? God's will, the word, the word will means God's desire. God, what is your desire for me? What do you want for my life? Paul is getting ready to tell us what God's will is for our life. He says this, verse three, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife. For the Lord avenges all such sins. 
As we have solemnly warned you before, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teachings, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Whew, it's going to be an encouraging Sunday. <laughs> Can I go there for a minute? I was going to anyway, but thank you for the five of you who gave me your permission. This is God's will for our lives. God's desire for his church, his people, his children is holiness. And specifically when I say holiness, in this instance, he's talking about sexual purity. Now, for these people, like I mentioned, this was probably a very foreign concept for them. Because sexual purity was not the norm in the culture. That is not the way they were living their lives. That's not what they saw when they walked into the marketplace. That's not what their families were a part of. That's not the way that their culture spoke. Purity was not their culture. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. It sounds a lot like the culture in which we live. But I want you to see something. Just because culture rages against this, it doesn't mean that it's no longer God's will. Culture may fight against what I'm talking about, but that does not change the fact that that is God's will for our lives. And I can hear you. I know I've been a pastor for a long time. I pastor teenagers for a very long time. I know what you're saying. Pastor, it's not easy. This is hard. This is difficult. This is not, it's not easy to be sexually pure. It wasn't easy back then either. When Paul taught this, he didn't teach this because it was easy. But just because it's not easy does not mean that it's not right. It's still God's will for our lives. He still requires that of his children. This is what he wants. And this, this is not just a good idea. This is not, Pastor Gabe had a nice little reflection on whether or not I should be pure. No, no, no. This is the will of God for your life. And if this is the will of God for your life, that means that to do the opposite is to be out of God's will for your life. I want to be very clear when I say that. God wants us to be holy. Well, pastor, what's holiness? What is that? Is holiness like a type of clothes that I'm supposed to wear, clothing? Like if I'm a woman, does it mean I can't wear pants? Like am I, if I'm a guy, I'm supposed to wear ugly clothes? Like robes and stuff? Is that what we're going to start doing at the Broussard campus? Because if so, I'm going to Midtown. Let me explain what holiness is. The word holy basically means to be set apart. When something is holy, it means that it's consecrated, it's unspoiled, it's pure. There's a specific, special um, usage of this thing. You don't treat it like it's common. You honor it because it's holy. It's different. It's not like everything else. It's not like everybody else. Why? Because you're holy. So when I say you're different, that's what I'm saying. God's called us to live holy lives. And again, in particular, Sexually, with our sexual purity. God wants us to control our bodies. Pastor, I don't know if I can. 
I don't know if I can live pure in this. Let me help you with something. Can I give, can I let you in on a secret? Y'all don't know what to say right now that I'm talking about this. That's that's quite okay. I want to let you in on a secret. The reason why, I'm going to tell you why. The reason why you sin sexually if you have. Here's the real deep secret inner healing meaning. Because you want it to. That's the reason. When we sin in these areas, it's a choice. It is always a choice. If you have sinned in that area, it's because you chose to sin in that area. Now, don't get me wrong. There are different reasons, things that we've experienced in the past that make things more difficult. There are things we've opened up. There's things that we keep in front of us on a daily basis. There's things that we see. It's things, experiences from our past that make it more difficult. But do not change, do not misconstrue the fact that it is always a choice. You sin in these areas because you want to. The level of temptation may be greater, but nevertheless, it's simply a temptation. And I'm telling you this because there's a number of reasons I want you to see this. There's some things I want you to get in this. And hopefully it's going to bring some freedom and some healing in your lives. God has given you the ability. If it is indeed a choice, then God gives us the ability to not take that choice. You know that scripture that you've heard? I, and I hear it all the time. I hear people quote it all the time. And can I just tell you, it's wrong every time they quote it. They say, God will never put more on me than I can bear. How many of you have ever heard that? That's not even close to being in the Bible. Well, yes, it is. It's, I saw it. I read it. Pastor, it said, God will never put more on me than I can That's not what it says. Let me tell you what it says. It says, God will never tempt you more than you can be tempted. He will never allow you to be tempted in such a manner in which there's no way for you to get out of it. What he was saying is there's always the option for you to not sin. He will never leave you in a situation where you have to do that sin. Because if you have to against your will, it's not a sin. It's when you choose to do it that causes it to be a sin. This is what God, God will always give us the ability to change. So whether we're living with someone that we're not married to, whether we're living in homosexuality, whether we're living in bondage to pornography, these are all things that you can be free from. These are all things you can be free from. Temptation comes, but temptation is not the same thing as sin. I've heard it said, I believe it was John Wesley who said it. He said, it's not the birds that fly across the, my, the nest that cause me to sin. It's the ones that I let land there. Yeah. Thoughts are going to come. Crazy thinking is going to come. Urges, emotions are going to come. But it's what you do with them that causes you to sin. Yeah. Man, this is really encouraging on a rainy Sunday. When we sin sexually with someone, we sin against our bodies. The Bible teaches us that. And we sin against that person. Single people, let me give you a new perspective to, in a way of thinking about this. Because this is the way, listen, I've, I've been single. I know. Here's the mindset. Here's the line. 
their sin. So let me get right on that mug. <laughs> right? Oops. Okay, let me get back. Right? That's the mindset that we have sometimes when it comes to this. But I want you to think about this. If you're single and that person is not the person that you are married to, then it means that it could be someone else's spouse one day that you're doing those things with. Could be someone else's spouse. Could be someone else's wife. Could be someone else's husband. That's the reality. Now, even even more so, Paul says this. He says, don't defame, don't, don't violate your brother's wife. And the next thing that he says is so important. Let's go back there for a minute. It's verse six. He says, never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this manner by violating his wife. Now listen to the next thing that he says. Pastor, why are you on this so much this morning? I want you to see this. This is who you're called to be. But this is the opposite of, this is when you don't obey that, you disobey it. It says this, for the Lord avenges all such sins. For the Lord avenges all such sins. When you sin against your brother's wife, God avenges that. And that is a fearful thing. And I'm not going to make light of that. And I'm not going to try to make you feel better about that because this is what the word says. Well, pastor, that makes me afraid. It should. That's called the fear of the Lord. That protects us. That keeps us. Because listen, sometimes your love for that person won't be enough. It will take the fear of the Lord to say, if I cross that bridge, I got to deal with him. It ain't worth it. It ain't worth it. And listen, I don't care how fine she is. Let me just tell you, she came from dirt. <laughs> let me just clarify. Let me, let's get real clear. Oh my gosh, she's so fine. Dirt. <laughs> He's so hot. Dirty. This is what the word says. Let me be very clear as well. Because I also don't want to leave any room for the enemy. If you have sinned in these areas, there's mercy and there's grace and there's forgiveness. That's also important for you to know. Yeah. There is not a thing that you have done or or area of that type of sin that you have committed that God can't forgive. The blood of Jesus washes us clean. When you say, I repent, and you turn from that thing, guess what? He washes you clean. But this is our response to that mercy. Our response to that mercy should be to turn from it. Our response to that mercy is not keep the mercy coming. Our response is, God, you forgave me. You healed me. Thank you. I will never do that again. That's our response to God's mercy and his grace. Are y'all with me? I know. Some of you are like, I don't know if I can be free. Let me promise you, you can be free. How do I know that? Because the Bible says it's the will of God for your life. And if it's his will, it's his bill. He'll pay for it. He'll provide for it. He'll take care of it because it is his will. Let me keep going. Next 
Next scripture. Verse 9. Let me just say this last thing. I'm sorry. I got I to gotta clarify. I want to make sure that you hear this. Again, I've said this. This is not me. This is not Pastor Jacob. This is not your mama. This is God's word. So disobeying this is disobeying God. Verse 9. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. For God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. Paul is praising them. Apparently, they were a very loving church. He's saying, you are killing it when it comes to loving each other. He says, you are crushing it. You are loving people and you're loving them well. But then he goes on to say, we urge you to love them even more. In other words, keep growing. And one thing I love about this church, you are a very loving people. You are very loving, very open, very welcoming, very caring, very generous. You love people. And I love that about you. But continue to grow in it. Because there, we can have the opportunity or the temptation to let that love grow cold. How do you let that love grow cold? When people disappoint you. When people hurt your feelings. When people do things to you that you, you trusted them and you, you tried to help them. And all of a sudden you go, well, I'm not doing that again. And you let your love grow cold. Paul is saying, let your love continue to grow. Incredible people. I've seen the people in our church. Many of y'all have heard us brag on how our people go and serve in moments of crisis. We had people just this past week going through a training just to be able to not only, when we're tearing down trees and rebuilding homes, but these people went through training so that they can physically minister to the people that we're serving. This is the heart of our people. It's the heart of you, our church. Just this past week, a member of our church, and I won't give it any specifics, but a member of our church literally got up, drove to another member of our church who was in the process of potentially harming themselves, and they were there to pray with them, rescue them, and get them the help that they needed. That's what we're called to. Don't stop growing in your love. Church, continue to love and to love well. Now remember, Paul is talking about how to live and what God's will is for our lives. And he goes on to verse 11. You thought I got in your business before. I'm about to get all up in it. Verse 11. He says, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business. <laughs> and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before now, what I just said, again, is in many cases is so countercultural in our society. It's so against the grain of the norm because everything in our culture says, be famous, right? Get ahead of everybody else. The goal in life is to be up here while everybody else is down there. Become an influencer. You remember, how many of y'all remember people my age, 40 and above? How many of you remember when you actually had to do something to be famous? Right. <laughs> Not people are just famous for being famous. What are you famous for? Because I'm famous. 
And that's the goal. The culture is let's get as many people to know me as possible. Yet, I find it ironic that those people who strive for that and attain it and get it and good for them, but they get it and then they complain about it. I can't go to the store without anybody knowing me. I can't go to some place without paparazzi taking pictures. I have no privacy. I have rights too. But it's the thing that you strived for. When you get it, you realize it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And I'm not knocking them. I'm not saying that they don't need help. They do. People deserve privacy. But what I'm saying is, you can, when you make that your God and you attain that God, you realize that God's not God. That's not meeting the needs like I thought it would. I thought it would make me feel significant, but now I just feel famous. I don't feel like I'm making any difference in the world. It's a difference between fame and significance. God wants his people to be significant. But he does not want us to go around getting more and more attention. And listen, I'm saying this. I don't know why I'm saying this, but I'm saying this as a pastor. And I have watched my brothers, fellow pastors, not in our church, but around the country who strived for fame and notoriety and they got it. And now they've fallen and collapsed for the world to see and brought a reproach on the name of our kingdom, our Jesus. That can never be our goal, church. Our goal is to bring glory to Jesus. Are y'all with me? I don't know why I'm saying all of that, but let's keep going. He says, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Then he says, minding your own business. Now, what he's talking about is, and we, can, we have ways of saying things, mind your business, mind. what we're saying is don't be nosy. But what he is saying is literally take care of your business. Take care of the things that you need to tend to instead of making everyone else tend to your business for you. He says, mind your business. Because in that day, in the early church, there was, in many, many cases, they, they had communes where they were living. They were, there was communal living where they would feed one another and give to one another. Remember in Jerusalem, they were selling fields and lands and all of this stuff. And they were just all waiting for Jesus to come back. And I'm going to talk about that in a moment. And so they're in there serving and giving and likely in Thessalonica, that probably was the same thing. And what Paul is saying is you need to tend to your own business instead of expecting everybody else to do it for you. If you've noticed, when people aren't focused and they don't have a purpose and they're not tending to their own business, what do they do? They worry about everything and they worry about your business. They tend to your business. They become busy bodies which is a nice way of saying gossiper, right? Because they don't have any purpose. All of a sudden they start worrying about your life and your business and not worrying about your life to make it better because they're not helping you. They're just telling everybody else what they think you should do. Let me be very clear about gossip. Gossip is not cute. Gossip is not a pet little issue. It is a horrible sin. It is a horrible sin sin it spreads lies it gives people wrong perspectives and it passes hurt from person to person to person it causes people to no longer trust it it breaks the relationships that God brought together that's what gossip does it's not cute 
I heard a story of a, um, a pastor who was at church and there was a woman in the church, fairly influential woman in the church, and she started going around. She got mad at the pastor, which I can't, I've never heard of that before, somebody getting mad at a pastor. But she would go and spread gossip all around the church until finally she got convicted and said, this is wrong. And she went to the pastor and she said, pastor, I'm, I'm so sorry I did this. I take it back. And he said, come with me. And he brings her up to the roof of the church and he takes one of those down feather pillows and he cuts it open and he throws the feathers over the roof and the wind's blowing, taking the feathers everywhere. And he looks at her and he says, this is what I want you to do to make it right. Whatever. I want you to go pick up all of those feathers. She says, that's impossible. I can't do that. And he said, it's also impossible for you to take back everything that you said. Once it's out there, it's out there. That's the dangers of gossip. You can't take it back. You can own it. You can repent and you should. You should go to your brother, your sister and say, hey, I said this. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. But those things can't be taken back. Paul says, mind your own business. And he says, work with your hands just as we instructed you. Work with your hands. Can I tell you something, church? We're called to work. We're called to work. Not to sit back and expect everyone else to do life for us, to provide for us. I want to help every man and every woman and every young man and every young woman hears this word, responsibility. We have to take responsibility for our own lives. Again, I've said this about our relationships within the church. We're not called to be independent, meaning I got this, I can do it all by myself. We're not called to be codependent, meaning I need you, I can't do anything for myself. We're called to be interdependent, meaning we supply and help where we can, where our brothers can't help themselves. But with that, we have to take responsibility for our lives and where we're at. And let me be very clear, there, may, there are people who have it much harder than you. There are people who have a much harder life. They, it's not as easy for them to get or accomplish the things that, it is, that you are able to do maybe with ease. But if that is you and you are that person and it's a lot harder, it's still your responsibility. It does not take away the fact that you have to own your life and where you are at. It's our responsibility. Work hard. Why? Paul tells us why. Not just because I'm a good person and it's a good virtue and I'm supposed to work hard. This is what he tells them. Verse 12, then once you do that, then people who are not believers will respect the way you live and you will not need to depend on others. How you do your job is a witness for God's kingdom. How you work your job displays God's glory in your life. Don't show up to your job with your OSC shirt and you're 15 minutes late. Don't tell everybody at your company that you're a Christian and they see you gossiping at lunchtime. They see you cheating on your time clock. That's a bad witness. I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians, Christianity used to be praised and honored for their work ethic, for their, for their honor, for how they serve those in need. 
Christians, even in the Roman Empire where they were being killed, were still serving the very people who were killing them. They worked hard. They had a good witness. And it was really hard to speak negatively about them because of their work ethic. Nowadays, Christians are known for the things we complain about and the things we condemn. What Paul is saying is, I want you to be a witness for those who are are even persecuting you. How do you do that? Mind your own business. Work hard. Stay quiet. Mind your business. Let me give you practical steps in this. Very practical. And I'm going to move on with this because I want to get to this last part. He says, be the, be, I'm just giving you tips here. Be the best worker at your job. Be a hard worker. Be the best one in the company. Show up early. Be diligent. Don't be a gossiper. And be trustworthy. And that may be a greater witness to your boss than any word that you can speak. Show them. Show them you're a believer. Be the best one there. Why? Because we're working as unto the Lord. You're not even working for them. We're working for Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Work as unto the Lord. Now Paul even comes back and he uses stronger language. He writes a second book to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. This is what he says. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. You see how those two constantly connect. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus to settle down and to work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. What he's saying is, I know you've seen them and I know you don't want to give now because you feel like people are taking advantage of you. Don't grow weary in well-doing. God will reward you for your giving. You keep giving. But he does say this. He does say this, take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. That seems harsh, pastor. But then he clarifies, he says this, don't think of them as enemies. I'm not saying walk away and go unclean because they don't have a job. What he's saying is, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. They're still family. You still love them. Now, also for clarity's sake, I understand that there are some of you who you've had a hard time finding a job. I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning you. If anything, I want to pray with you and believe God to send you the right job. But what I'm saying is, don't go weary even in that waiting. Put your hands to something. Do what you can. Do what you can. That's beneath me. Don't let it be beneath you. Do it with honor and dignity. Now, Paul says, he's saying, stay away from them, right? What he, I want you to notice, he's saying, do this as a brother. How many of you have ever been around your siblings when they're about to get a spanking? <laughs> you can be in the room and everything's fun and they do something wrong and mom walks in with the belt and all of a sudden the environment changes. Like, I'm, I have nothing to do with that. Go do your thing. I think that's a good picture of what Paul is saying. If they're going to disobey God, God's going to deal with them. Let God deal with them. 
Let God deal with them. But then he shifts gears, Paul does, and he comforts. And this is where I'm going to end. And what he's saying is not too far away from what we read in the third chapter, verse 13, which I'm going to remind you of. He says, may he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 13 says this. After Paul said all of those instructions, he ends with this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Paul is saying this to encourage them. He's getting ready to build them up and encourage them. See, in that day, believers thought that at any moment, Jesus could come back. Paul even believed that any moment Jesus could come back. I remember when I first got saved, I was the only Christian in my household, in, in my family. I would be in my room and, man, if I, like if I heard a railroad something, I'm looking in the window, is it the rapture? Jesus, you coming back? That's kind of how they felt in the early church. Well, didn't Paul hear from God? Didn't he know that it was going to take a long time? Truth is, Jesus didn't even know when he was coming back. His disciples asked him that, and Jesus said, only the Father knows that time. I don't know. So, of course, Paul didn't know. Jesus didn't even know. And I think the church is always supposed to live with this tension of putting our hand to the plow because we still have to build God's kingdom. We're not supposed to sit in our basement eating MREs, waiting for the rapture. But we're supposed to be ready on the drop of a dime because no man knows the hour of the day that he'll come back. So they didn't know when Jesus was coming back. And with this came this false belief that the Thessalonians had that those who died before Jesus came back, before the rapture came, would somehow miss that moment. And so they were starting to grieve and they were grieving like those who did not have hope. What does that mean? Grieving like those who don't have hope. Those who are not born again, who don't know Jesus, the world grieves for them and rightfully so, because they, they die. There's a death that takes place that is an eternal death. But for the Christian, for the believer, actually, as a matter of fact, the Greek word that Paul used here in, in verses 13 and 14 was not actually died. The translators jumped ahead because they knew what the real, like where Paul was going with this. But the word that he used is the word koimao. Koimao, and that word basically means to sleep. It means to sleep. Paul is saying, if you're worried about those who are asleep. Now, why would he say that? Because Jesus used the same language. Jesus, when Lazarus was dead, Jesus said, well, Lazarus is asleep. And his disciples were like, he's sleeping? Then what's all this commotion about if he's only sleeping? Jesus had to get playing. Guys, he's dead. Oh, okay, Jesus got it. What Paul is saying here, he's using that same language because why, why would he even use the word sleep? Because sleep is something that's temporary. You wake up. And Jesus has the power to treat death the same way that he treats sleep. Wake up. He has all power. And he's saying, now, what I'm not saying is that there's some people who believe that when you when you're die, when you're like physically your body dies, that your body goes into this soul sleep. And all of a sudden, you don't wake up until the rapture. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's the truth. And I'm going I'm to tell you why in a moment. But what Paul is trying to get them to see is that there, 
don't grieve like the world grieves. Because the world, when they die, they go to hell. There is a real heaven, there is a real hell, and you will go to one of those places. There is no purgatory. There's no in-between. There's heaven and there's hell. But this sleep, if you will, our body physically is dead and it stays here on the earth. But our spirit is with Jesus. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells us that in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says this. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What he's saying is when I'm not with my body, I'm going to be with the Lord. What? Your spirit, your consciousness will be with Jesus, though your physical body will be here. Paul even says this in Philippians chapter two, verse 22, he says, but if I live, this is the type of mindset I want y'all to get because I hope this encourages you. This is not often the mindset that any of us really have, but I believe it's the mindset God wants us to have. This is what he says. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and to be with Christ. Notice he didn't say, I long to be asleep for a thousand years. He said, I long to go and be with Christ, which, is, which would be far better for me. But for your sake, it is better that I continue to live. For the believer, death is not bad news. Our goal is to be with Jesus. For the Christian, for the believer, death, it may seem scary, but I want to encourage you, for those of you who've lost loved ones, death is defeated. The sting of death is defeated. What do I mean? Those who we know and love, who've gone before us, who are right with God, they're with Jesus. And yes, we can grieve. It's completely uncaring to say, don't grieve, there with Jesus. No, grieve. Some of you need to go through the process of grieving those who you know and you love and you had to let go of, but you're not grieving like the world does because they're with Jesus. And guess what? The good news that Paul was about to give us, you're gonna see him again. Our goodbyes are not a forever goodbye. For us, our goodbye is like when someone goes to sleep. We're gonna see them again. Paul goes on to say this. If you want to read more about that, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can read that and talk more about it. But verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Again, they thought that the believers who would die were going to miss this rapture. They were going to miss this moment because they died before Jesus came back. Because again, they were expecting him to come back at any moment. Verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord, meaning this is a word from God. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. In other words, they won't miss a thing. 
Well, how are they going to rise? I thought their spirits were with Jesus. Their spirits with Jesus, but their physical body is going to be brought back in that moment. When Jesus comes back, well, pastor, if they're dirt and fish ate them and all that stuff, how are they going to come back together? We're talking about God here. <laughs> We're not talking about science. We're not talking about Neil deGrasse. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who created us from dirt. Their physical bodies will come back and be risen. Verse 17, then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Another translation says we will have a meeting with him in the air. We will rise and have a meeting with the Lord. What a glorious day. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. One day, church, we're going to be with God. One day, they will have a glorious moment where Jesus Christ appears in that sky. And it's not going to be some secret moment that only a few people know about. The world is going to know what happened. This is a very, and I'm using this word loosely, but a very violent moment, meaning that the world, the attention of the world will turn to that moment when Jesus Christ appears with the holy angels, the trumpet of God, the archangels of the Lord. They will come and reap God's children, his people. Pastor, when is that going to happen? Let me give you my best shot at it. I don't know. Are you pre-trib? Are you post-trib? Are you amillennialist? Are you pre-millennialist? Are you post-millennialist? Some of y'all are like, well, what? Who's a millennial? I don't, I don't know. But the good news I have is that what I do know is it's going to happen. And he's coming back for his own. And we're going to meet him in the sky. That's the God that we serve. That's the good news. So we will live with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. What is all that I have to do with, with family virtues, Pastor Gabe? I'm ending with this. Being holy is worth it. The things that you say no to now, the pain that you endure now will one day be worth it. You don't have to fear death if you've lived a holy life. One day we're gonna stand before Jesus. He's gonna appear in the sky and we're gonna receive our reward. So say no to the world now. Say no to those things because your reward is coming. And if you've lost loved ones who are with Jesus, you'll see them again. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these family virtues, for these things, God, that you've called your children to. You've called us to live this way as people who are not like the world. We're holy, we're set apart, we're different. That's exactly how you want us to be. I pray for those in this room, God, who've been wrestling and struggling with purity. I pray that you give them the victory. Open up their eyes to see, Lord, just like that analogy of a tiger who's in a cage and the door's wide open and they don't even know that they're free. Jesus, what you did on the cross was you opened that gate, they're free. They're free. I pray they would live in that. For those you've challenged this morning to walk with the responsibility, God, to steward themselves and their families well, I pray that you would, you would give them the courage to take the steps that they need, 
even facing rejection, even facing trying in his heart, help them to be wise stewards of the life and the gifts and the talents you've given them. And Lord, for those who are here who are grieving, those they've lost, bring comfort to them. Encourage them that they didn't say a forever goodbye. Really, they said, see you later. I thank you, Lord, for that. Comfort your children. If you're here this morning with every eye closed and every head bowing, as I'm talking about going to meet the Lord in the sky one day, this glorious day, maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, if that moment came right now, I wouldn't be ready. I'm not right with him. I'm not born again. I'm not talking about if you're a Christian and you need to repent of sin, this and you can do that right where you're at right now in this moment. But I'm talking about those who have never made the decision to surrender lordship of their life to Jesus. You're not born again. Jesus said it this way. This is the way Jesus said it to a religious leader. He said, you cannot see this kingdom unless you're first born again. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I want to be born again, how do I do it? I want to walk you through this very simple process. And the reason it's simple is because Jesus did the complicated part when he died on the cross for your sins. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner, that there's sin in your life that separates you from a holy God. B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. That the price he paid was for you. And C, you confess. Confess what? that you're turning over control of your life to him, that you're making him the Lord of all and you're committing, Lord, I'm gonna follow you from this moment on. If that's you and no one looking around in this place on the count of three, I want you to lift up your hand and I'm gonna lead us all in this prayer of surrender to Jesus and God is gonna forgive you, he's gonna wash you clean and you're gonna be a child of God. One, two, three. If that's you, lift up your hand. If you say, Pastor, that's me, I wanna be born again. Thank you. I see your hand back there. Anyone else? Thank you, sir. I see your hand. This is your moment. Don't be ashamed. Put it up high. Put it up high. Praise God. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Anyone else? I just want to acknowledge that I'm praying with you. Thank you, sir. I see your hand back there. You can put him down. Church, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Before I do that, if you say, I missed that opportunity, Pastor, I was ashamed, I was afraid, I didn't want to do it, but your heart's beating out of your chest and you know this is your moment, this is the decision you want to make. I'm going to give you one more opportunity to lift up your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, if you say, I didn't lift it the first time, but I want to lift it, I want to include me in that prayer, Pastor Gabe. Thank you, church. Pray this prayer out loud with me. Thank you, sir. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe on the cross, you died for my sin, my guilt, and my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of it. And I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you are my father. Jesus, you're my savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, 
Amen. Come on, church. Let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer.